Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. You know, I was planning on releasing episodes every two weeks after these initial four episodes, and I'm sure that eventually I will get to that release schedule, but I was looking through all the episodes I have in the pipeline, which is a lot, and it would just take too long to get them all out. I'm too excited about the show, and I want to keep working on it because I love working on it. So for at least the next month or two, I think I'm going to release an episode per week, and then eventually that'll slow down to every other week. Um, But before we get into this episode, I've got two quick announcements. Number one, the Bad Christian Conference, February 15th to 17th in Dallas. I'll be there as a kind of a utility player on multiple panels, leading breakout sessions, etc., hanging out, having beers, chatting with people. I went last year and I had a great time, and honestly, I was pretty moved, kind of unexpectedly moved by the whole thing. So if you want to join, badchristiancon.com. There's a link in the show notes. Second announcement, we are really rolling now with the You Have Permission Facebook group. It is for patrons only. Um, More info on that in about 20 to 25 minutes in between our two guests today. But I set it up that way to keep it more intimate, to have it feel more safe. And because I plan to put in a, a really decent amount of time moderating and engaging with the posts on there. So if you are a patron or if you sign up today to be a patron, just search You Have Permission on Facebook and it'll come up. You request to join. I double check that against your Patreon membership and approve you. There's also a link to that group in the show notes. Now, on to today's episode. Should unreached people be reached? This topic is one that is always interesting, I think, and it's a really complicated question, which is why so many Christian universities have missiology departments. Missiology is just the study of missions and mission work. But it's come to the forefront of the global conversation over the last few months because of the story of John Chow. Now, if you're not familiar with that story, here is a basic recap. John Chow was a 26-year-old missionary who managed to get himself smuggled to North Sentinel Island, an island in the Bay of Bengal between India and Myanmar. 
The island is home to somewhere between 20 and 200 members of a completely unreached people group. We don't know how many people there are there because that's how unreached they are. And they're not just unreached by Christians or the gospel, but they are unreached by the Indian government, which has jurisdiction over that island. In fact, no one in the world, other than the North Sentinelese themselves, even speaks their language. That's how isolated they are. Uh, we'll hear more later, but a few details are worth noting up top. The North Sentinelese are protected by the Indian government, partly because it is believed that they lack the necessary antibodies to combat diseases that could easily be carried by those from the mainland. In other words, had John Chow been welcomed by them, he may have ended up killing most of them by accident, even from a simple virus or flu. Now, John Chow did make it to the beach, where eventually he was killed by the tribe's people as they hurled spears at him from a distance. It's hard to think about that scene, and content warning here, this is going to get a little graphic if you have kids in the room. It's hard to think about that, a young missionary being pelted with spears, bleeding out on the sand, but it might be worth dwelling on it a bit to remind ourselves of the stakes of situations like this, not just for the missionaries, but for those they're trying to reach as well. Now, adding fuel to the fire of discussion around this, Chow also left his journal behind with the fishermen who smuggled him to the island, leaving us with some detailed information up until his last day or so. Unsurprisingly, there have been a slew of articles and op-eds written about this whole incident. Now, obviously, it's a tragedy, perhaps in more ways than are even immediately apparent to us. If the whole thing was indeed a waste of energy, a waste of a human life, then we should still ask, who is responsible for that waste? John Chow himself only? Theological and missiological accepted wisdom in certain traditions? It's hard to know. But today, we're going to hear from two guests trying to get our heads around all of this. The first is my friend, Andy Hirschman. He's not an expert. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor here in the Seattle area. And I just wanted to know what a sort of theologically middle-of-the-road evangelical pastor thought about a situation like this, given that Andy more or less shares John Chow's basic assumptions about salvation and preaching the gospel. And then after we hear from Andy, I talked to Dr. David Leong, professor of missiology at Seattle Pacific University, to get another perspective. So here's my chat with Andy. Andy, thank you for chatting with me about this issue. So in 1956... Five missionaries were, were killed in eastern Ecuador. Life magazine gives them a 10-page spread. Here's a quote. Five devout men who sought to bring the word of God to a fierce tribe of Stone Age savages, end quote. Uh, why not simply the same treatment today? And, and as a pastor, do you think that something has changed? What's changed? Right. Now, when you say that, you mean why not simply the same treatment today in regards to Life magazine's treatment of them. Yeah, like why didn't John Chow get like a ten-page spread of what a brave man he was to bring the gospel to savages? Well, I think the biggest thing is the gospel is not in the cultural lexicon today. A big thing like it once was. Yeah, in 1956, you know, maybe a much bigger percentage of Americans would have applauded such efforts, and today we're more secular, right? But do, you, but do you think that, like, in a perfect world, ought he to be lauded the same way as those men? I think it's obeying the gospel commandment of going into all the nations, uh, evangelizing, discipling all people. Are I think there, there's that that part. That part holds the same, holds true. Are there no other limits or are there no, <laughs> you know, sort of guide rails to that? Guardrails? In, in, in terms of the church itself or in terms of culture? In terms of individual Christians from the West going right. to other places that don't have the gospel, is it like, look, if you want to lay down your life, lay down your life? 
It's got to get done somewhere or the other, and the most important thing is to get them the gospel. Well, I think from a Christian perspective or from the church's point of view, it's always going to have that element to it. It's always going to have an element of sort of John the Baptist, head out to the wilderness, go and go and do and you know boldly go where no man has gone before. There's always going to be an element of that in the church, I believe. Obviously, culture doesn't necessarily feel the same way because there are inherent perils to it. There's going to be, I mean, everything, I mean, I think we've even talked about or we've read about, I should say, uh, disease. He can bring disease and yeah, things like right. that. We'll get to some more of those kind of trade-off questions. But first, right. let me just ask you, so his actions make sense if if he believed, it seems like he did, right. that people who do not accept Christ in their lifetime go to hell. And so from that perspective, he's like, hey, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try and get them to know Christ so they don't have to go to hell. Right. Now, is that what you think happens to anyone living in one of these tribes who lives and dies? To clarify, you're saying, do I believe that people who have not heard the gospel audibly um, from another person, do they go to hell? Yeah, I guess I'm I'm saying people who have not heard and they die, do they go to hell because they had no way to accept Christ? I definitely believe God's fair and faithful in his promises, meaning that there are other ways to hear. You know, there are, there's, you know, everything from Jesus talking about he has sheep not of this tribe, that there's, there's other, not of this fold, excuse me. Not of this fold, yeah. (laughs) Sorry. So I think he's fair and faithful in the application of that. And I think there are other ways to hear than audibly. Um, Even before the gospel, there was, uh, you know, there were righteous men. So I, I, I don't, I don't know. For sure. But like, should a people group get reached, all things being equal, they definitely should get reached. Oh, absolutely. Right. Whereas some people would say, no, 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 do not mess with their culture. Like, let that happen organically. We've seen what happens when powerful cultures mess with less powerful cultures. Well, there's a there's a there's a sort of a mean difference between those two as well, because one is a matter of culture and then one is a matter of the gospel and i don't think i think traditionally they have gone hand in hand but i don't think they always need to that's the interesting question and that is really that seems like that's the question for modern missions is there a way to communicate the gospel of jesus without cultural imperialism right and kind of where you land on this story is a result of where you land on that question yeah Calvary Chapel, the group that I'm a part of, the tribe that I'm a part of, had a missionary to, I don't want to say it incorrectly, I think it was to Peru, where they had multiple wives, and they brought the gospel there, and they had elders in a Calvary Chapel that had multiple wives, and they didn't sort of forbid them from coming and and being a part and even becoming leaders. Now, you know, obviously that's not uh, modern prescription right. and evangelicalism for sure. Right. And I don't think it's a great idea. It's husband of but one wife. At but the they same were sort time, of grandfathered in. They were sort of grandfathered in. And I think there's an element of, you know, allowing them to have their existing culture while transforming, you know, with the with and through the gospel. Yeah, there's a really interesting question there. Even no matter where you are on this spectrum of like, is it worth changing some parts of cultures? Like are some parts of cultures bad? Right, like a, right. a culture with multiple wives. Like I would argue, the wives are not very well off. Right, right. That's a that's uh, a sexist practice. Even if originally it, it was a, a agricultural thing or something. Right, it right, isn't right. anymore. To take and, care of many yeah, women right. with many children. Right, to take care of your crops and so the Star Trek question. Right, the the kind of if you find another uh, planet, if you find a, a group <laughs> of people, like you never. You do not mess with them. That is something that works on Star Trek, but you would say does not apply in the real world. Definitely from the Christian perspective, I mean, everything from where to be a city on a hill is a shining example to going into all the world. I mean, there's a sort of implicit part of going. You know, you have to find and go. And so, I mean, I think there is an element of us going that's true, that's good. There are can be potentially a lot of costs. There's always going to be things that are going to be tricky. And, you know, whenever you dive into another culture, I mean, everything from misunderstanding it on your own, your own side to, to offending, to 
bringing disease in this case. So let's talk about this individual case a little bit. Sure. I want to go through some of the details here. So first of all, it was illegal what he did. It, right. By Indian law, uh, he's not allowed to go to that island. And had he gone through the appropriate sort of visa process, he ne- it never would have been approved. So he basically had to deceive the Indian government to get into the country, right? Um, right. Wh- what do you think about that? How does that play in? I think... Breaking the law is not the greatest idea. And I, I think there are higher laws. I think there's, I mean, there's natural physical things that are like that. You know, there's there's gravity and then aerodynamics and thrust that, that soar above those laws, those lower laws. But I do think there's there's trickiness involved there. And, and is does that, does that come with a cost? Yes, it does. I mean, well, the cost in this case cost. might might also be PR. I mean, it's not just sure. John Chow's life, but like, in India, there is some persecution of Christians right. who are a minority by a Hindu majority. And like now, there's this big news yeah. item where this Christian broke the law, right. went to try and do this. Like, we can't quantify. Of course, we don't know how much misery that will cause Christians in India. Right. But it certainly doesn't help. Definitely. Right. Does an American college kid thinking about <laughs> overseas missions, like, should they have that in mind? Right. Is there numbers? Have, have, have we have we heard numbers on how many people are part of this tribe? Oh, it's versus dozens, dozens, dozens of members of this tribe. Of the that whole he was, tribe, there. Are, yeah, it's dozens. It's not. It's not a ton. And then I don't. I don't know the numbers of Christians that are in India. I well, mean, I mean, it's got a billion people, so you've got to assume at least. <laughs> right. I don't know, fifty to a hundred million, just off the top of my head, fifty million Christians, right. something like that. So I mean, I, definitely, there's a PR that's that's not so good. And not even just PR, but that the fact that some of these other believers could be persecuted. I mean, at the same time, you know, it might help others be bold. I mean, some of those costs, I don't know that you can weigh out perfectly. I mean, numbers, you, can, you can't have a single number alone. You need more than one number. You need something to weigh yeah. it against, for sure. Yeah. That's difficult. I don't, I don't know if that's a good answer, but... Well, no, it's fine. <laughs> just acknowledging what's hard about it. Yeah. The reasoning behind the law in India is primarily to protect them from disease because doctors in India have determined that like their immune systems are probably not well equipped, just like the native Americans on our continent. Right. Right. Uh, Of all the Indians who were killed, it's like 90 plus percent were not killed in warfare. They were killed just through smallpox and other diseases because we had animals, we had antibodies from having domesticated animals that they didn't have. Right. Right. I mean, does that matter that like there's a good reason for the law and that like Christian missions organizations, if they are considering an island and they can look up the reasoning for the law and they go, that's a pretty good reason. Right. We should respect that. Or do we think, no, it's <laughs> yeah, they might die from smallpox or they might die from a bacterial infection, but like they're going to go to hell. Right. I mean, so much of it comes down to hell. Right. Right. Maybe maybe a better version is a medical mission that you get mm. you get you know the idea would be that you get some something from the government you go in ha- in hazmat suits with you know trying to you know both help them and evangelize them. I mean, does it? Wh- why do we have this thing where it's either or? Why can't we bring both the gospel and yeah. you know yeah. it's like the Thessalonians passage you know we share with you not only the gospel of God but our own lives as well because you'd become dear to us that there is a sense of i mean this is a kid you know this is a young college kid who yeah he's zealous and w- i i believe well-intentioned i don't believe malintentioned yeah i mean if most people are good intentioned yeah maybe yeah. an idiot but yeah, but, but, but well-intentioned yeah. idiot and you know i mean pay to pay to steepest price you can pay you know but i think you know cooler heads might prevail with with bringing in, you know, we want to help these people, not just sp- spiritually, but, you know, in every which way. Now, I think some people just think we want to bring like, you know, SUVs and refrigerators. And, right. <laughs> but we can't we can bring metal ad- medical advances. And, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Western culture has a lot to offer. Right. Not only take away. Um, and that has to be factored in. Let's say perfect world. There's no law. There, there is a unreached people group, but there's right. no law forbidding it. Okay. Right. And the necessary prep work has been done by some adults who are serious <laughs> about their mission work. Yeah. What do you think is actually, and not that you're, I know you're not a missionary, but 
do you have a sense of like, what is the best way to convince people of the gospel? People who've never heard it before. What's the best way to convince people? Yeah, like what are best practices? <laughs> and do you think that John Chow was on that track for best practices? I think when you're talking about anything that's uncharted, the best practices are going to have with them caveats. Right, because you know? there's a lot of unknowns. There, there's a lot of unknowns. Yeah. So best practices are going to they're going to be a little bit different and everything. Ideally, you, you know, you either go with some protection or or maybe the help of the government or uh, you know, so Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, one of the things that jumped out to me about the story is no one speaks their language. Yeah. There is no one in the world that speaks North Sentinelese. John Chow didn't speak it. Uh, He went to, like, a language prep, you know, whatever, at a missions organization, but he's not a linguist. Right. Right? I mean, like, does it matter that there was no plan that he just thought? I mean, this is a real question. He just thought, God will miraculously save these people through my showing up. Even though I can't communicate with them in words, even though it's illegal for me to go there, it will just work. And then he got killed. And he and there's it's unclear how he could have communicated the gospel to them at all. Right. Maybe the Jesus film or something like that, which right. wouldn't have subtitles. He could do a pantomime. Uh, he could pantomime a... <laughs> the the gap between God and man and the right. cross as a bridge. I mean, that wouldn't make. I mean, yeah. So, like, does that matter? That seems to matter. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think there's probably better ways to go about it, for sure. And for good or for bad, it gets the gospel out that people are still doing this, and 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 that there are unreached people groups in this world. I I think that's it's not all bad. I think it can really put a, a sour note for certain on yeah. on you know people who are insincere or you know misguided or just they're just not thoughtful about what we're doing leaving aside the secular culture right so this this change from the 50s to now just the change in missions in the last 60 years so the way that fellow christians think about this do do you the fact that i think we would agree he was not immediately hailed as a martyr as he might have been 60 years ago right by the missions community so unrelated to the outside world is that change good that we have sort of try to separate colonialism from evangelism and and yeah. trying be, to be more careful about other cultures and stuff. Right. I, I think generally, I mean, you know, the, a lot of these guys have gone on in the past. These were trained people. They were, they sure. went, they went with, and they went with, you know, no social media, no, no, I mean, all the, the globalism that we have going on today didn't exist in the same format that it does now. Totally. So, yeah. you know, in, in, in less than 24 hours, we hear about his death. We hear, you know, we, we hear the whole story. We see his Facebook page. We see what he's been writing for months and years. You, know, you don't see Jim Elliott's diary or, uh, whatever, whatever the book was, you know, for, you know, 10 more years. Right. Right. So it gets, it gets a bit varnished, you know, even a life magazine article is going to take you six, eight, 10 months, a year right, more to research, a to, research spread, yeah. to get the ideas to, you know, this is all the unvarnished opinions with maybe not as many facts or maybe just facts with no sense of like what the gospel is. Why do you bring the gospel? I mean, we're just getting the, you know, the, the news dump you know, of, of information and, you know, along with his Facebook page for a little bit of a, uh, you know, op-ed or, or just a little color to it, the whole story. I mean, that's what's changed. Yeah. So is it good? I I think there's good about that, but I think time's going to help these stories be a little bit more realistic than they might be with the news dump. Yeah. The 24-hour news cycle. News is uh, the first draft of history, right? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Okay, last question for you. And uh, we're not going to talk about homosexuality today. I know uh, that you and I don't agree on that. But what we do agree on is that in the church, for instance, homosexuality, if it is a sin, is the same as any other sin. There's no hierarchy of sins in the Bible. Paul makes this clear in Romans 1 and 2, Right. right? Correct. We are all guilty of all this stuff. But... Homosexuality is like a sexier sin. It's uh, it's one that we've launched, that we've uh, latched onto in the evangelical church, and you know, for sure, for, for who who knows what reasons, right? And and sort of erroneously, because if we want to treat sins the way God treats them, we would treat them equally, and whatever, love people equally, right. to, 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 no matter what, right? Is there a parallel thing going on here? Are unreached people sexier 
than just your neighbor, the homeless person down the street, the the woman who was abused by her pastor as a kid and now hates the church. Are they sexier than the migrant people in your community picking fruit, right? Like, is there is there something like that going on where we're kind of fetishizing and like vaunting this this particular kind of reach because it's just like more entertaining and more adventurous, right? I think I, I think what you're going to always find, I think, is for the zealous, for the people that are that really want to you know obey the great commission uh, in Matthew 28. That there's that operative word go, like they yeah. have to go somewhere right. and somewhere, you know, if it's an unreached group, the migrant workers, the neighbors, the, they're not, I mean, they may be unreached, but not in co- some kind of cohesive, you know, totally put together way. Yeah. So there's always going to, for the zealous, there's always going to be that element. But and I think you matter? may be right. Like who, but like from a, from God's view, who cares? This one's unreached. This one's been reached really poorly. Right. And so doesn't believe in me. I mean, like, what's the souls are of equal value. Right. Right. Like, isn't there a sense in which it's because they're wearing, they have spears. Right. And they're, you know, it's like, it's like a Robinson Crusoe. Right. Story. Yeah. I mean, is there some of that going on? And should the church make an effort to control for that? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think there definitely is an element. I mean, if you're talking about unreached people, the, you know, the that's the thing. Oh, yeah. like it's like, it's oh, you're the raising premier. money for sex trafficking? Okay, we're in now. Right. Right. Like, it doesn't right. – that's just like a hot topic to raise money yeah. for unreached people, similar yeah. in the evangelical world. Yeah, I mean, it's – you know, it's it, it has – it's there's a bummer part to it for certain. I You know, I, I, I wished it kind of went down differently. You know, at the same time, I mean, you hopefully it, it there's a little inspiration for people. At the same time, maybe not in that same way. You know, there's there's some plus to it and negative, and you know, we'll see. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, you're welcome. Anytime, Dan. Sometimes I get to have really interesting conversations, and I had one last night with my buddy Josh Montoya, who is studying right now to be a therapist, and the issue that he is most interested in is spiritual trauma, spiritual abuse. We talked for almost an hour. He told me his story of spiritual trauma and how that has changed the way he thinks about the church, thinks about emotional health in the context of Christian faith. It was a fantastic conversation, and it is this week's patron-only bonus episode. So you can get these. They come out twice a month by going to patreon.com slash dancoke. There's a link in the show notes, or dancokewords.com, or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. I was so into this conversation that I'm going to play a bunch of little clips here from it. But it was about an hour long, really interesting stuff. And I will have Josh back to talk more about this idea he is pursuing and is confused about as to whether or not emotionally healthy spiritual communities are actually possible in this world. Obviously, they are hard to come by, but might they be there if we know how to bring them about? Anyway, here is some of that conversation with Josh. I hope you dig it. The church that I went to be a part of, um, it was an internship where um, you weren't allowed to date, you weren't allowed to have a car, you weren't allowed to have a job. If I thought it was weird, I would have not done <laughs> You know, none of us right. are doing things that we right. think are weird most of the time. Um, once we identify that the things we're doing are weird, we usually make some effort to change them. Uh, but I was still, none of it was weird to me yet. Now, retroactively, I've been able to go back and see theologically so many things that I disagree with and are highly problematic, but there was a huge level of congruity between how they lived and what they talked about and what was taught. Granted, control is what allowed there to be that congruity, but... Um, and, and <laughs> yeah, a hell of a lot of fear. Is, the real world is messier than that much. Congruence. Yes. But the, con- but that congruence was incredibly attractive to me. Oh yeah. It was ultimately what I, what he was saying, but not saying was you, you can leave the church. He was kind of saying you can leave your faith and you can leave all of this behind. Or if you want, if you still want to have anything, um, if you, 
and 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 it was as if he was the arbiter of this. If you want to be a a person with any integrity, you will stay and grind this out. And that's what I did. In American Protestantism, mostly nobody thought that pastors needed to think about the emotional health of themselves or their congregation or whatever. Is that is that yeah, sort of the well, back? I mean, culturally, it was basically what we have is truth. And if the truth makes you feel sad, bummer. Th- that that's like a perfect segue to what do we you know when we talk about abuse, when we talk about yeah. um, damage, when you talk about trauma, it's very very important to to identify that the these words have nothing to do with the intention of the perpetrator. Um, we're talking about the effect that is had on the victim. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need a knowing perpetrator to experience abuse, a working definition of, of trauma for this conversation would be any experience that someone has had physical or emotional that has, that has taken on a trajectory setting power for their life about which they currently feel powerless to, to correct. If there's an account correlated with my existence where I'm in the red. Yeah. Wow. And, and so that's, that's not exactly a physically measurable symptom. No, but it's it's phenomenological. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a feeling. Um, there tends to be, yeah. And this stuff comes, it comes out in language. It comes out in the way people talk about themselves. It comes out in the way that people, specifically the way people talk about God. And my question remains, is healthy Christian spiritual community possible? My experience and the experience that I've been exposed to has told me no. My faith tells me maybe. And that's why I keep asking the question, because I'm not content with the experience that has proven to me that it's not possible. I think it still might be um, because I believe the gospel, because I believe that that what this this mess of shit that we're all floating in is redeemable. Um, And that is the thing that actually moves me to critique it. Um, and to critique anything that stands up and says it's good or anything that stands up and anyone who wants to stand up and say, I'm a pastor or I'm a spiritual leader or this is a church is going to get the, the highest level of scrutiny I can muster because I think that the real form of that really is hope. Man, what a conversation with Josh. Besides these bonus episodes to a month, uh, patrons also have access to a patron only Facebook discussion group that you have permission Facebook group or some, whatever it's called. And I moderate that. And we talk through the episodes and through really whatever people are going through, whatever they're questioning. And it's really an awesome resource. There's a lot of people in there who have been digging into these questions for a long time. So that's another perk of becoming a patron. It starts at $5 a month, patreon.com slash Dan Coke, K O C H or you have permission pod.com. Thank you guys for your support. Back to the show. So I did actually manage to later look up the real number of Christians in India, and it's more like 25 million, not 50 or 100, but still, that is a lot of people. And we do have to think about the consequences for their lives as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, next up is Dr. David Leong, professor of missiology at Seattle Pacific University. He's going to have a little different perspective than Andy has. We're not going to blame Andy for not having as nuanced of a view as Dr. Leong. He has a PhD. He writes books on this subject. I just wanted to contrast. There's not a ton of contrast, but I wanted to see what that contrast was. And uh, I was unfortunately a little strapped for time with David. Didn't have quite as much time as I wanted. We could have talked much longer, but I think that he was at least able to touch on most of the biggest questions surrounding this incident and this question in general and the implications that that has for missions work in the modern era. So here's my chat with David Leong. Are there basic differences between how evangelicals have historically done missionary work and how, say, Catholics or other Christian branches have done them? 
Yes, there um, are quite a few differences. Catholics have been doing this a little bit longer. They have a 500-year jump on what most would consider a more organized Protestant effort that launched yeah. really in the early 20th century. Yeah. So, But I think the main difference really has to do with just the hierarchy and organization of the Catholic Church. Most mission efforts were really connected uh, to large mission orders. And so they Ignatian, were... Yeah, Jesuit, etc. Yeah. yeah. And so I think, I think when people think of Protestant mission today, it's much more free range, if you will. There are, of course well-established agencies that do a lot of training and a lot of long-term work in nations and with people groups. And then there's also a lot of free agents, if you will, who just kind of pop in and out. There's, um, you know, I think with the rise of short-term mission as a, a veritable industry within evangelicalism, right. it's created just all sorts of kind of side efforts and different ways that I think as Protestants typically have always wanted to split off and innovate and try new things and um, sometimes oftentimes doing that without a whole lot of accountability. A lot of missions thought, though, comes down to this idea that, hey, man, if a soul saved is the only real dollar in the bank, if really what awaits the average person is eternal hell, then who cares how you get them into heaven? No amount of colonial oppression on (laughs) earth is worse than going to hell. Now, it seems like we almost have to start there because, it, you know, if that's your view, right? I mean, literally anything will be permitted. It could be. Yeah. I seems. mean, there's there's multiple lines of inquiry here. You know, is every decade or so there's a new kind of resurgence and interest in eschatology? Is hell a place of literal conscious eternal torment or not? What are yeah. the arguments behind that? I do think... Um, a related line of inquiry there that's really perhaps more constructive, but equally important, not to say that thinking about hell is or isn't important. Um, but I think this this doctrine of salvation, this understanding of of uh, the breadth uh, and the mechanics, maybe mechanics is not really the right word I should use, but I just think that um, generally speaking, most Christians have a, a rather impoverished or oversimplified understanding of salvation. And the more we really reduce salvation to a a process that we control or to something that is in our hands, um, I think we make a lot of not just theological misappropriations, but I think it leads to practices and justifications like you're describing as sort of ends justifying the means. Um, Generally, I just don't think we talk enough about what salvation means. I would love to have more conversations with people about... um, how recognizing that salvation is ultimately uh, belongs to God and is a part of uh, God's authority and God's control. And so any kind of ways that we try to understand that doctrine, um, I think ultimately have to really be held in balance with recognizing that um, salvation is a gift. It's something that um, is beyond ourselves. Mm. Yeah. There's a way in which uh, a certain kind of mission focus can really be almost works-based. It can be kind of, it, it can downplay the role that God's grace plays. It, it's kind of like a bootstrappy American, roll up your sleeves, we're going to get these people saved. Like, all it takes is us responding to the call. And that might be true for like, I don't know, school beautification projects sure. or, you know, funding for yeah. a police department. Yeah. Uh, but once you start thinking about the saving of eternal souls, all of a sudden you're introducing a lot more variables yeah. than you have in, in other kind of yeah. more basic, you know, betterment programs. Yeah. And I think even that, this idea that salvation should be focused on individual souls is this really narrow way of conceiving of salvation. If salvation is really about God uh, remaking the whole of creation, um, that involves not just people, but it involves the whole earth, all the structures and systems we've created. Um, And I think when we reduce an understanding of salvation to just counting up the souls and having a tally sheet of one people on this side and one number of people on the other side, yeah, I just think that we end up uh, really misplacing a lot of our time and priorities. We uh, misunderstand uh, the breadth of how God works in society to be an agent of transformation. And I think it just kind of mechanizes the process and turns us into, it turns all of, frankly, evangelism and outreach and mission into this really industrial 
folks, I, I think a little bit of like it's McDonald's, right? Like we we turn salvation mm. into a hamburger, and we and we make it fifty nine cents, and we tell people like, you know, five billion served. Like we've got, yeah, um, yeah. I think we could really, really miss what what God is doing in terms of other ways of conceiving of salvation. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, that could be its own episode. Um, <laughs> but even if we agree on what salvation is. Even if we agreed with John Chow on what salvation is, there's still a question of method, right? Right. So as you think about his example and, and uh, or that story and, and the way that missions has changed over the past 50, 100 years, how do you think about the, the concept of method? What, what, what do sort of missiologists think now that they didn't think 50 years ago in terms of yeah. what is actually an effective way to do this? Yeah, I mean – a lot of the earliest missiologists in the 20th century were cultural anthropologists by training. Cultural anthropology itself as a field has changed quite a bit. Um, a lot of them were really tackling areas of inquiry that did not yet really exist as formal fields. They were looking at kinship studies or linguistics. They were just trying to make their way around encountering foreign people and places. Um, so cultural anthropology in recent years has become a lot more interdisciplinary, um, and it's partly just because the growth of knowledge and uh, and technology. And so I think along with that, an understanding of how incredibly vast and complex the study of culture is, has, I think, for the most part, really improved how we understand what those strategies are. But if you are a more typical anti-intellectual type of evangelical, that's sure. not going to appeal to you. you I mean, <laughs> sure. really, and this is well yeah. documented, and it's not a smear. It, it's I grew up around that. You know, it's... Uh, the other day, I told someone I was going to be working toward a PhD, and she joked, you know what that means, permanent head damage. <laughs> and I was like, I recognize that kind of a thought. Yeah, there's from a lot evangelical- of good acronyms. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but that's like a very – that's kind of a standard way of thinking about the complexities of all this stuff. We don't need your interdisciplinary yeah. – like brass tacks, <laughs> these souls need to get saved, David. Yeah. And so there's, a, there's even a conflict there, right? You have to accept that like complicated and nuanced – study, interdisciplinary study is necessary to love people well. Mm -hmm. And not everybody's on board with that. No, that's true. I think there's a, a, like you mentioned, a vast anti-intellectual thread in all of our theological reflection. Um, And so part of what people like myself, part of what we, we do here at Seattle Pacific is try to build a foundation and a framework for people to do that harder work and, and also really even tackling, you know, where that anti-intellectualism comes from and what are the fears and presumptions it's attached to. But, um, but back to strategy, even you don't have to, I tell people, you know, you don't need to get a master's degree or any kind of to do graduate work in intercultural studies to, uh, to think about mission thoughtfully. In terms of strategy, one, I mentioned earlier this, uh, you know, the, the phenomenon of the rapid growth of short-term mission. Not that long ago, short-term mission was really thought of in terms up to about one year. Because of the phenomenon of so many North Americans essentially having a very limited calendar of travel and whatnot, we have this new term that we call micro-term. That's the only which, kind I yeah, ever went on. Yeah, yeah one which is week not, or whatever. Yeah. Not even like a, my sister did this uh, one year teaching English in Japan after she graduated. We would have considered that like a short-term. Pl- what can you learn about a place in a year as you're acquiring a language? Not a whole lot, honestly. I mean, right. you, um, you know, there's a joke in, in missiology circles that um, what do people – who have spent 10 years in a foreign country and two weeks have in common, and they both think that they're experts about about, (laughs) about a foreign culture. And so I think when we talk about strategy and method, even without getting into the intellectual pieces, we have to say, like, what does it mean to have this really, really condensed timeline of encounter? And what, what actually happens? There's tons of social psychology, there's tons of anthropology research around this, and how can we not do, at the very least, not do the harm that we know occurs when we come into these situations with a lot of false presumptions over what can occur in such a short period of time. Well, that leads into my next question, which is about John Chow and the language of the North Centralese. One of the missions organizations that he was involved with said that he was, quote, prepared to learn their language, unquote. That sounds a little bit to me like advertising speak because... He hadn't learned it, right? Um, and no one knows it. So he is certainly not more prepared than I don't know an Indian-born linguist would be, right? Like that would be the person who would be prepared to <laughs> right. learn it. There, there's yeah. no sense in which it can be true that John Chow was 
prepared, prepared to yeah. learn it. He had taken some ling- linguistics classes. Right. But like, you know, there are professional linguists that don't know this. Right. And none of them know this language because of this contact. He's 26 years old. I mean, that strikes me as one of the most bad faith statements made right. by anybody around this whole thing. Um, moving away from my own emotion. Like, sure. what, what do you think when you, when you read that a statement like that from, I'm, I'm not, I remember which yeah. of the organizations it was. I, we need some pretty big air quotes around prepared. Yeah. Um, yeah. It does sound to me like this is a lot of essentially damage control. You know, I read a number of op-eds, you know, the whole range from he's a martyr to he's a terrorist, everything yeah. in between. Um, on the language piece, I mean, I think as you've already noted, it's incredibly difficult, like, to to learn any foreign language, let alone one that has been isolated and that, and for good reason. He could have been a, a linguistic savant for being 26. It still would not have prepared him in any way for when you read um, kind of his his encounters of shouting from the boat, you know, my name is John, Jesus loves you. Yeah, in English, yeah. Um, and and I, I mean no disrespect to him as a person, his memory, his intentions. That statement may be encapsulated in that he believed he was prepared or believed that in some way that he would have been committed to that kind of study. But I just think realistically no such structure for the possibility of that even existed. So I think that's that's maybe a harsh statement. But um, I think we have to be truthful about maybe the, the more reckless aspects of this and to say that um, I hear all the time from people how well-meaning intentions should carry more weight than they do. And I think unfortunately um, we don't have – we don't always have the luxury of cleaning up after people's intentions. And I think a lot of damage that's done um, needs to be taken into account. What does it say about the state of evangelical missions, speaking of damage control, that he was involved with two of these organizations, maybe not the two biggest, but like, you know, medium-sized missions organizations, and that from one perspective, he could have been so blind to the advances in missiology over the last six or seven decades or whatever. I mean, I think on one level, it's... um just sort of the the tribalism within evangelical the evangelical landscape in North America, the ways in which um, we will always find an audience to reinforce maybe the, our pre-existing uh, notions about uh, about theology or mission, and this is maybe true across the spectrum. So I mean, to be fair, all of us uh, live in spaces, whether denominational or non-denominational or social media spaces, even where we are more often than not. In a, in a virtual echo chamber or in a real life echo chamber, and we're yeah. told that, given the size of evangelicalism in America, it's it's not it's not difficult to do that to believe that you're encountering a range of voices, but in fact be encountering the same voices over and over again, assuring you that that understanding of the soul, that that understanding of mission, is mm-hmm. the correct one. I think about people, you know, whether you're on a YWAM base in the middle of nowhere or in like a you know, a really mission oriented congregation in say the Midwest or the deep South, you know, each of us as humans is simply limited by the perspectives that we're encountering. And I think more than ever, um, because of the plurality of opinions that are, that we're swimming in all the time, it's a lot more comforting to find a space where those views are going to be reinforced rather than challenged. Yeah. I remember distinctly a moment uh, in my late teens where I felt like I really had a grasp on end times thinking because I had heard out premillennial and postmillennial <laughs> yeah. uh, dispensationalists. Sure. Maybe we're taken at the beginning of the rapture. Maybe we're taken yeah, in the which middle of the it? tribulation right. or at the end. Of course, I hadn't heard from anybody who didn't believe any of that stuff. But I had the illusion of a diversity of viewpoints, right? Why are unreached people so much sexier than the people who need Christ's love in our backyard? Yes, uh, good question. I spent a lot of time thinking about that, mostly because I am—I I really am an accidental missiologist. Um, I landed, I think, in urban missiology because I wanted to think much more about how cities as a complex kind of a geographic structure would help us to think about the 
continuum of mission between local and global. That's, oh, that's, a, maybe, a, that's maybe a different conversation. I but mean, I, it is, but that's really interesting. Yeah. But I do think that in a lot of ways, mission is more comfortable when it's kept at arm's length. And when we yeah. play leapfrog over all the people who are our immediate neighbors, you know, a really common yeah. phenomenon. It's still, uh, you know, this was true for me, like the short term mission trip to Mexico was like this coming of age thing in evangelicalism. I, oh, yeah. I went as a high school student, as a, then I led it as a college student. And not to dismiss entirely, you know, the transformative impacts of that. It's in there somewhere. But I do think about how there's this research, um, pretty painful research, um, that's not too hard to find around how many millions of Americans and dollars and hours are spent across that border. Um, and how many people will go to Mexico and hold children in an orphanage, dig or dig trenches and build homes and, um, presumably do this out of love and compassion and then come back to communities full of hispanic and latino migrants and, and refugees literally the same yeah. people and and treat them with just incredible disrespect mm. and sometimes even hatred and so that ought to be a point of reflection i think for us to say how can these yeah. things coexist can well, and we, that yeah. leap, the leapfrogging is not only in missions i mean i think about it in terms of charitable giving it yeah. is it the bang for my buck both financially and in terms of the emotional value of a world vision kid on my refrigerator, the bang for that, for those yeah. 35 bucks I get compared to, I don't know, like a local school with poor funding. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it, you can't beat it. The return yeah. on investment is insane. <laughs> and, but yeah. if it, you know, I'm, I'm being sarcastic, right. Yeah. But it, it, yeah. it, it does work that yeah. way. Yeah. There's this, uh, t-shirt i've seen it has like an outline of the continent of africa and it says like proceeds from the sale of this t-shirt benefit my self-image and i think that um i think that <laughs> there amazing. is you know it reminds me too of a john john perkins says in his book uh, welcoming justice he says like is crossing the cultural barrier easier in an airplane than hmm. crossing like you know the, the tracks in our own neighborhoods and yeah. i think um you know he's he's been hitting on that for for decades and talking about why Christian community development and its movement that came out of Jackson, Mississippi and spread really throughout the country and around the world is just as missiological of an expression um, as any number of traditional overseas mission um, organizations. And so, I mean, and that's really what mission looks like in a globalized era is, you know, uh, no longer this from the West to the rest, but really an everyone to everywhere movement. And that's, um, it's exciting to me that that's starting to get propagated in a more um, it's being published a lot more but i think that's really just the last 10 years that we've had more oftentimes non-majority voices coming to places of of prominence and publication to say that to say hey like we need to disrupt these previous patterns um, of thinking so that we can connect the dots a little bit more i want to spend uh a, a bit more on John Chow because yeah. we are limited with time today here's a quote from his journals okay. towards the end lord is this island Satan's last stronghold where none have heard or even had the chance to hear your name? End quote. Satan's stronghold. What does that say about the people who live there from John Chow's perspective? And can that be squared with, in your mind, a good theology, a good missiology? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. Be, How come? Because would I be think the short I'll, answer. Yeah. Um, uh, well, Again, I, I want to recognize uh, that these words of John Chow come out of a kind of theological environment that I'm familiar with, and it comes from a place yeah. of conviction, and and, right. uh, and it comes from a place of not wanting to presume that there are demonic forces, especially alive and at work in these in this people group, but more so just from a, a rather casual understanding that unreached people groups, we might call them broadly, are... are are somehow uh, kept in a kind of spiritual darkness. I understand where that argument comes from. Um, I think earlier I talked about how we need a more robust understanding of of salvation. I think it's equally important that we have a robust understanding of the Imago Dei to say, how do we understand what it means to be human? And what does it mean that every human on this planet bears the image and you know the stamp of the creator, the mark of God? I have a former colleague um, who talked a lot about how understanding pneumatology and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit really helps us to see that like the Spirit of God is alive and at work in each person, and maybe one way that we think about the Imago Dei is um, alive in, in every human. And so is, is it possible that God's image and goodness 
um, inhabits every living being in this world. Um, and if that's the case, um, it doesn't mean that there are no demonic strongholds on our planet. I think it just maybe shifts the binary of dark and light a little bit to say that part of what we do when we encounter quote-unquote unreached people groups is we discover where God's already at work. We find God revealed in creation through natural theology. We find God in all sorts of surprising places we may not expect. And I, I just think that that might help to to balance some of this oppositional theology that really doesn't make much room for the possibility of God being at work in a place before we get there or before we determine that they are unreached. What do you think the most relevant problematic aspects are of the John Chow case? Is it the fact that it was illegal? Is it the fact that it was illegal because these people are being protected by their government? Is it the fact that now there are a bunch of Christians in India who will have a PR problem on their hands and some of them are already persecuted. Like of all the problems, sure. what's the one that, yeah. uh, that hits you the hardest? Sure. No, that's a good question. I think that, I think those more specific ones on the local level that you've identified are really critical and are largely absent from a lot of the discourse of saying mm-hmm. like, you know, what happens after. But I think for, for me as just, uh, an observer and someone who, um, looks at this kind of phenomenon and recognizes the patterns, I think one of the damaging things is the narrative that it propagates is it, it, it is that John's not the only one. He, he, I think the, the prominence of this story really highlights, um, how alive and well this entanglement of colonial Christianity still is. And so I think mm. it, it does for many people, it reinstantiates that image of evangelicalism as being this ill-informed, aggressive, reckless, culturally imperialist kind of effort. Um, yeah. And and so for all of the the people I know who are missiologists or missionaries or former missionaries or people who work in what we might call the mission field broadly defined, um, this does damage to how they how they explain their work to others, how they raise support, how people like me teach courses. I think it can easily be, I mean, as far this, this story was uh, global in its reach. Yeah. And so, um, so on the one hand, I don't think that it's um, magnifying a false narrative. I think there are those agencies and individuals, these, these things do exist. I think it's a more egregious case and a more tragic case. Sure. But I think that's the main thing for me is I tell people all the time living in a place like Seattle, it's really hard for me to explain what I teach. Missiology is hard to explain to Christians, let alone like I joke with my right. I joke with my graduate students to tell someone I, that I'm a professor of missiology. I might as well just say like I study the subjugation of indigenous peoples. I study like <laughs> religious coercion. I, yeah. It's like. So, yeah, when I go to, like, the PTA meeting for my kids' public schools, I don't exactly say, like, <laughs> yeah, let me talk to you about what missionaries do and have done through the centuries. And this is not going to make that job easier for you. Yeah, so maybe that's why yeah. it hits me. But um, Sure. There's a great quote from Rod Dreher's blog post about this, which I'm, I'm sure you read. Um, it's kind of longer. I'm going to read it. Sure. What is the right thing to do in a case like these islanders? To do what it takes to bring the gospel to them, live with them, and learn their language could kill them. How does it show love for them to put them at risk of death? On the other hand, how does it show love for them to allow their souls to risk eternal death? I think the only reasonable way to resolve this dilemma from a Christian theological point of view is to pray for and trust in God's mercy for them, but to leave them alone. It is one thing to be willing to lay down your life for these tribal people. It is cruel to expect them to lay down their lives so you can prove your love for God. End mm. quote. What do you think about that? Well, I would drop this mic, but uh, <laughs> it would, it I don't want to damage your equipment. Um, no, I think that's really, I think it's really well stated. I mean, I think there's a little bit in the beginning where he talks about, you know, that we're back to that question of, is it really the eternal damnation of souls? Well, that, that that's where I want to go at. too. Let's go there. But um, let's talk about that. So, is it the eternal? I mean, so much of this does hinge on what you think happens to people who don't hear the gospel in their mm-hmm. lifetime. What if if we if we consider shifting our view on that question? Yeah. Then how does that change? This yeah. What changes? I think um, it reminds me um, a few years ago on this campus. Um, we had this very casual forum. A few of our faculty gathered. A few of our school of theology faculty gathered around uh, Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Mm-hmm 
which had, you know, a little bit of a splash in the moment, but frankly, um, and I think by his own admission, wasn't really making especially original claims that hadn't been made in the 1980s by C.S. Lewis around yeah. this idea of universal salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting just to see, not that I, you know, relish people getting triggered by by things that <laughs> that they're maybe not conscious of, but I think that that conversation of, or just without getting into the the nuts and bolts of the doctrine of universal universal salvation, of which there are a number of different varieties, um, I think it's just an interesting point of reflection to say, what is our, let's just, you know, if we're in a room with a bunch of Christians and if we're just having a kind of thought experiment over, you know, what, what does that change? Um, what if our, our understanding of salvation is a little bit off? And what if in the end, uh, the mercy and grace of God, which abounds and which surpasses human understanding, uh, welcomes with open arms people who we just didn't presume were part of the in group? Um, what does that change for us? And so I think that that should be, and so we may react to that idea in different ways, but I would love to just be able to just have that conversation more with people to pause a bit and say, what changes about your faith now? And I think it goes to me, it comes back to this instrumental understanding of evangelism and salvation. If we, if we are Christian in this life, and if we invite other people into the Christian faith for this instrumental purpose of securing their eternal destiny, I just see that as inherently problematic about life in the here and now. What it, 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 there's, it's a really impoverished theological anthropology. It doesn't help us to understand what it means to be human now. Um, it turns all of evangelism and mission into this um, more coercive uh, mechanical operation. So I don't know, maybe without getting into following all of those yeah, out- outcomes, threads, I, I do though, think yeah. that maybe it's just a way to say, hey, um, what would whether it was um, you know, a formal setting or, or a conversation between friends, what if God is so gracious? What if God is so loving? What if salvation is so broad that we can't even conceive mm. of how it works? And really all of our, I love the metaphor that N.T. Wright uses. Of, he says all of studying theology is a little bit like shining a flashlight at the sun. Mm. And so how do we, I think in the end for me, it comes down to holding this idea of confidence and humility together. How do we do those things well? How, do, how can we be confident um, in the truth of the gospel, in the effects of salvation um, on our lives and on this world, but also come with a real genuine humility of saying, like, maybe we don't know. And what's at stake when we don't know? And if we don't know, does that does the whole house of cards crumble? Or can we still be a really faithful people seeking after Christ with a discipleship that's really authentic, even while recognizing salvation's outside of our hands? Yeah, it seems like the only place to really take that question is at an individual level. It's the kind of thing that we each need to think about. What what is at stake for me personally if if I if if God's grace is bigger than I thought? Mm-hmm. You know, what what am I holding on to? Um I've got you for one last question. This yeah. is the question of the episode. It's <laughs> it's unanswerable. Sure. But I would like your take on it. I mean, we're not going to answer it, but do unreached people peoples mm-hmm. need to be reached? at least in the way we've commonly thought of that. Oh gosh, I think it depends. This will <laughs> this will sound like a very like I'm dodging your question here, but I really do mean this. It depends on what we mean by unreached peoples and by reached. But I do think that in a broad sense, maybe if if I could reframe, reframe the question please. a bit. Good. I'll say like, you know, if someone were to ask me as as a missiologist, do I want every person uh to hear and receive uh, the good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation that God offers, of course, absolutely. I want I want every human uh, to understand that they were um, beautifully and wonderfully made by their creator and that that all-powerful and all-loving creator God became incarnate in the person of Jesus and that Christ is, in the words of Leslie Newbegin, um, the key to history and the light of the nations. So I believe that wholeheartedly. But, and that's where there's maybe a big, you know, qualifier, I think how we designate sometimes who's reached and who's unreached, what it means for someone to become reached, I think we have a lot of work to do here. I think we have a lot of work to um, still in the 21st century to unpack what does it mean uh, to really uh, embrace and embody the gospel? What does it mean for the transformation of societies? How are we in this very interesting global era thinking about evangelism and, and mission as really uh, mutual and reciprocal processes. How are we 
coming to terms with our own cultural syncretism as we encounter other people's cultural Christianities. So I think um, there's so much more that we could learn, I think, if we could level the playing field a bit. And that's my frustration with these categories of reached and unreached is there's a really unstated power dynamic at play there. And I think if we just had more of the humility I was describing earlier to say, you know, what can we learn in mission? Where do we discover God at work? Um, then maybe we can get to some of that other good stuff of every person, you know, receiving and encountering the knowledge and goodness of God with more open-handedness and maybe with more equity and cooperation for a new world. I think the, the global demographics of the church demand it. Um, and so we have a wonderful opportunity as two guys sitting in Seattle uh, uh, <laughs> representing Western Christianity broadly or, or American Christianity more specifically to say, yeah. hey, what can we learn? Um, and how can we come alongside other people who are, you know, in the journey? Thank you so much, man. Thank you. Thank you to Andy and David. Thank you to you for listening. In the show notes, I've got that Rod Dreher blog post that I read from with David, as well as another article written by Ruth Graham that I think is really insightful and helpful. There's also a link to David's faculty page with links to his books and the, those links I mentioned earlier, badchristiancon.com and the You Have Permission Facebook group link, as well as the link to join the Patreon. Get involved in that group and get the two bonus episodes every month. These episodes really are intended to be a resource, so please share them, even with people who might disagree, parents, friends, pastors, whomever. And let me know how that conversation goes. I want to hear from you. Who should I interview? What topics would you like to hear discussed? What questions are keeping you up at night or distracting you at work? Email me at youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much. See you next week. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. Powered by how.